Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right now, to the grain. If your team have ever been involved in a relegation battle, and uh, in Scotland there are only two teams who've never been relegated, one of which is the mighty dandies, Aberdeen, you'll know all about the emotional roller coaster that it can cause. If your team survived, you'll also know all about the sheer pulsating exhilaration. Matt Letizia is fascinating on battling for survival at Southampton, plus the burden of responsibility that he felt on his shoulders while trying to keep the club in the top flight. Matt explains why Glenn Hoddle was the only manager he swore at during his career. And listen closely for reflections on Ronnie Eklund, the lost genius of European football, Maurizio Pochettino, plus Gareth Bale. He's good on those. Really interesting. This episode was made possible by Nordoff Robbins. We spoke to Matt before Nordoff Robbins' annual football fundraising dinner in London at Grosvenor House. And their charity work is something we'd like you to consider. Nordoff Robbins works hard and brilliantly to deliver music therapy which changes the lives of vulnerable children and adults across the UK. The big interview's free. We told you we would try and keep it free. But if you've enjoyed this interview with Matt and you think it's worth a pound or more, then please go to www.nordoff-robbins.org.uk and donate. We'd thank you for it and I think you'd feel proud. Laters. Then, again, let me go on my curiosity. Aberdeen's my club, passionate about them. I was lucky enough to be at Pataudry when, you know, we were winning trophies with Eddie Turnbull and Ali McLeod, and then Billy McNeil was a classy man. This fella from St Mirren came along. Ferguson... Mm-hmm. We took on Glasgow, we won the league, we took on Europe, we beat Bayern Munich, we beat Real Madrid, and it was it changed my life. I'm not going to bore people who have listened to this before, but it changed my belief about what was possible in life, mm. what you could I'm achieve, sure what ambition was about, risks you might take. Leicester fans are exactly must the same be, thing as what you must saying be now. feeling the same now. Mm. My God, I didn't realise that if you act like that and think like that and work, blah, blah. If there was one time that even came close to equaling that feeling about taking on the big boys and winning trophies... It was the one season that we flirted with, really flirted with relegation. And the adrenaline and the sense of that very British us against the odds. And what was I doing? I was a, you know, <laughs> watching. But it, it was very seductive. And then when we got away with it, the feeling of glory, mm. which I didn't, I've never heard anybody else talk about until I was reading what you said about life at Southampton. And <laughs> I think the one maybe the first one where you save yourself and you go and sit in the bus on your own that was, uh, and said to yourself or said in the book 93-94 yeah we drew three all at West Ham you felt like winning a, it was like winning a cup it, it, I could have more of this these are odd sensations that, that was that. an odd sensation I think the, the thing about that season is kind of we'd been written off as gone I mean I never used to really kind of look at relegation odds back then but uh, 
I'd imagine we got beaten over Easter by Oldham and Man City, both at home. Both were rivals for relegation. And after that Easter weekend, it was kind of like, you're gone, you're shot. And uh, we were probably one to eight shots to go down at that point. And then we went to Norwich and we uh, we won the magnificent game 5-4. At the time, it was the first time, but I think somebody's done it since. I think it was the, the first time that a team had ever been behind three times in a football match and came back and won. Mm-hmm. And we scored the, the winner. Ken Moncow scored a header in the last minute of the game to win the game. And I remember after that game being interviewed on the pitch and the guy said, this is after those two shocking defeats at home. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy interviewed me said, you know, how important was that? And I can remember stood there and saying, at the end of the season, I'm hoping that that goal just there is the one we look back on and go, that kept us up. And it was. We stayed up by a point, I think it was, that, that season. But that coming, that belief from coming back three times in the game, I think just reinvigorated everybody that we could actually stay up that season. And that was kind of a, a, that was a nice feeling, that 5-4 game. But getting to that last game of the season at West Ham, we drew three all and I scored a penalty and a free kick that day and I set up the other goal for Neil Madison. And when the final whistle went and we'd stayed up, it was just such a, such a relief kind of everyone was kind of really joyous in the in the change room afterwards and it, and it did feel like we'd won something but I can remember just I was just so drained for, for giving everything that I'd had in that last bit of the season to kind of make sure we stayed up that while everybody was kind of celebrating I kind of just slipped out the the change room and I was the first one on the bus and just sat at the back of the bus and it was just a, a really strange feeling of satisfaction that Kind of, we we were dead and buried, but we'd done it, and and I played a big part in doing that. You, you remind me a little bit of one of the things that was quite special about David Beckham through his career. Was, it was it was eerie. The more you put him down, the more adversity there was. The more he would tend to produce. Mm. Oh, I remember. I was I was sat watching that game against Greece at Old Trafford, and and I'll never forget it because it was the uh, it was the night of my testimonial dinner. Oh, it was the afternoon. I was having my testimonial dinner in that evening. And I'm sat in the afternoon watching this game and I'm thinking, jeez, we're not going to qualify here. And I've got my testimonial dinner. The atmosphere is going to be really shit at my testimonial dinner because all these England fans are going to come. Oh, God. But when he got that free kick in the last minute, I mean, I'd watch him take five or six free kicks before that and, and he wasn't striking them particularly well. But when that free kick got given in the last minute, I was going let him take it yeah. let him take it don't take it off him because he's had that many chances he knows this is the last chance he'll produce it and when the ball went in I kind of I, I kind of went mad but I I half expected it to go in I was off my sofa as I, as I probably just got I, just admit, I was <laughs> off I stripped off my grease kit and um, yeah. that adversity that being pushed down that being put down yeah I mean that we came back in? from from the 98 World Cup stuff with what happened to him there it was extraordinary uh, wasn't it unbelievable how we turned Ooh, that around you know you're in a slightly dangerous zone now <laughs> like I ask you know I worked as a reporter when the England manager roundly lied Glenn Hoddle and then took the thing that he'd been asked about and sold it in his book and over and over again when I speak to players of talent who've worked there's two things that come out when you speak to players that worked with him if you were potentially as good as him, or if you were stepping in his golden sunshine, <laughs> you'd probably be put down. And secondly, it's said over and over again, and I know you're a devotee of this, that he was very, very good as a coach. 
Absolutely. Very good. Yeah. Tactically, um, the best I've played under. Given that we're talking about the joy and the success and the, the thrill of football as a life, how difficult it is when somebody you idolise turns out <laughs> to be not just feet of clay, but steel toe cap, uh-huh. feet of clay as well. Yeah, I kind of guess, I mean, looking back, that was kind of one of the more disappointing aspects of my career. I think having looked up to him as an absolute hero as a kid, when I made my full debut for Southampton, it was against Spurs, he was on the pitch, it was kind of like, oh, brilliant. And then you kind of get to know him a little bit, and, and it's like, oh, not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was kind of one of the disappointing things that we kind of never really got on, you know, especially as he was England manager left me out of the 98 World Cup squad after I scored the hat-trick in the B game. It was a bit sad, and then he turned up at Southampton as the manager about a year after he'd got sacked from England, and it was just a really strange atmosphere. He kind of didn't really, you know, didn't get to see eye to eye with him. He was just a different bloke than me, I guess, at the end of the day. Again, without being mean, because we're talking about the psychology of sport and the power and the danger of that, frankly... Does jealousy come into what you experienced under him? It's difficult because you kind of try and find reasons why it was like that. Yeah. And it kind of it doesn't seem to... I can't find any other reason other than that why he didn't really see eye to eye with me. I don't think it's a... I mean, I'm not defending him, but I don't think it's a very unnatural thing in human life because oh, we're sure, all full yeah. of frailties and, yeah, and, yeah, of and seeing somebody maybe stealing a bit of your thunder or, or listening too often to comparisons yeah. I think does get at people possibly possibly but you know I'd like to think as a human being that yes you can be compared to somebody and somebody can have an opinion that perhaps he was better than you were or you know he was on the same level as you were very similar type players I guess I'd look at it a little bit differently I'd look at it as a compliment Mm-hmm. To kind of you know, I don't I don't look at it and go somebody's comparing me to Glenn Oddle. Oh, I was way better than it. I, I look at it and go, wow, somebody's comparing mm-hmm. me to somebody who was that good. Wow, I'll take that all day. But that's kind of that's how I am. I really liked your. Um, I think at some stage I can't remember when you were at a golf tournament and you saw him sitting alone at a table and you just went up to if not make the piece, just say hi and and kind of maybe smooth over the ashes. Mm. I really like that in life. Yeah, was it just uh, an instinct to? Uh, yeah, do you know, I think or? it was. Bit, well, obviously, I'd finished my football career. You know, there was no chance of him ever picking me again at any club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a, a think, slight calculation in there. That's no, good. it was just that. You know, it, there was this atmosphere kind of between us that we never really cleared the air from from uh, times at Sam. He was the only manager in my career. I didn't fall out with my managers. No, at Sam. I wasn't one of those players. If I wasn't in the team, do you know what? you're not picking me that's fine I'll go back in the reserves I'll work I'll get my form back and I'll, and I'll get back in the team that's, that's how I was exactly um, you know even Ian Bramford who kind of had completely the, the opposite idea of how football should be played than, than yeah, I did yeah. I never fell out with him personally the only manager I ever swore at in my entire career was, was Glenn Hoddle and I just at the end of my career I just thought yeah, life's too short Brilliant. and we were out in Dubai it was in the hotel and breakfast and I thought he sat there on his own and I thought no, I'm just going to go have a chat with him because I just wanted to get it off my chest and I apologised to him because maybe I should have been a bit more respectful as a player towards my manager but I just thought life's too short I went and apologised to him and kind of got it off my chest really and I, I thought and we could 
kind of move on from there. And we we have done, and we see each other occasionally now, and it's and it's fine. That's enough in life, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm still waiting for his apology, but you know, <laughs> I've done my bit. <laughs> when he gets round to it, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> you, when your head hits the pillow, you, you're not you're not racked with guilt about not apologising to Glenn. I, I listen. I, we don't set out to be different on, on this podcast. I genuinely think that not just football life could do with more attitudes like that. I damn it. He'll tell you. I could learn from that. <laughs> we'll let Richard Byers come in now. 94-5 Richard. was Matt's best season. Part of that season, he was playing alongside Ronnie Eklund. If Ronnie had stayed fit and signed, would we have won something? It was the best football scene at Southampton, brackets, until recent years. And not just do I want to know your view on, on Ronnie. I, I was obsessed by Ronnie Eklund when I was a kid. Oh, were you? I had a, I had a friend who knew him and, and eventually met his representative somehow. And he was this player that I'd heard these massive stories about his talent and his mm. individuality and whatever. And then because TV, as you said, wasn't as all-encompassing then, there was no internet, I didn't really see enough of him. Mm. And, and therefore, for many years, I just I cursed. I never saw this guy in his back injury. Yeah. So it's a good question from Richard. One, would you have won something? Would we have won something? Stayed? I mean, that would have been a big ask. Um, you know, I mean, we were in, in those... We finished 10th that season. Ronnie only played... I think Ronnie only played about 20 games or so for Southampton. But that season that, that we played, we got on brilliantly off the pitch as, as well as on it. But just had a almost an instant telepathy on the football pitch we knew what each other was thinking and we knew where the ball was going to be going we knew where to run we knew where we could find each other and that that season for me was the most fun that I had on a football pitch playing alongside Ronnie obviously you need kind of more than just a couple of guys <laughs> to go and win a trophy but you know for us a 10th place finish at, at that point and it was great timing that we did it because obviously we've been struggling at the wrong end of the table for a few years and that season was the season when four teams went down for the mm-hmm. Premier League it's almost as if we knew we got to pull a finger out here if you, you ever had to around. look lively it was then <laughs> so, uh, so yeah we, we had a, a strong finish to that season and uh, we climbed up but in telling us a bit more about him for those who are you're young and don't know anything about him what, you're going to allow so, me to hear about one of my heroes and you're going to talk about one of the most important men in your life yeah so that, that season kind of was just brilliant we had one and never get the way it came about we were out in a pre-season in Holland and Barcelona were at the same pre-season training camp um, Johan Cruyff was manager at Barca at the time Bawley was manager of Raz the two, them two were good friends and they'd spoken over dinner and Johan had said to Alan you know how's your squad looking do you need anything what, what can I help you and, uh, and Bawley said we could do with someone to, to play with Matt Letizier we've got this lad who played we could do with somebody who's on kind of and Johan looked at him and he said uh I'll leave you a present in the morning. So we came down the next morning and Ronnie was just sat in reception on his own with his pair of boots and his bag. <laughs> and he'd, Barcelona had buggered off and he'd been left there on his own to come and train with us. And from that very first training session, he was just like, oh, the lads were looking around going, jeez, this guy can't get in the Barcelona team. <laughs> we're like, whoa. And he was just super. His first touch was brilliant. His movement off the ball, he was so clever a very brainy footballer and that was just heaven for me to play alongside him you know um, I think in the repetitive nature of people asking you and we have questions here about choosing not to leave Southampton one of the things that maybe makes people still curious is the fact that it might have been the case that had you chosen a had they come in for you to whether it was a Barcelona or Real Madrid or a Liverpool or a Manchester United I suppose it might have been 
that for four or five seasons you might have played with five or six Ronnie Eklund style players around you because mm -hmm. that's what sometimes clubs with bigger budgets do groom and put together. Yep. So irrespective of the leaving or not leaving of Southampton or the trophies, or they, that, that must leave you with a sense of, if it's not regret, an itch that you haven't scratched because you talked about the happiness of having somebody on the wavelength, yeah. same wavelength as you. But, I, but that was great and I was, and I was happy. But by the same token, I also loved the challenge of still keeping Southampton in the Premier League, even though we didn't have the best players. And I kind of, I felt like if I left Southampton and the following season they got relegated. Oh my word. I felt like that, that would be on my mm. head. Yeah. Wow. That's how I felt about it. This is an extraordinary responsibility to have carried around throughout your playing career. And that's, that's kind of one of the big reasons why I stayed. I loved it at Southampton. I love the area yes. that I live in. Yes. Fantastic. The fans were always brilliant to me. But Southampton gave me my chance to be a professional footballer. And because of the way we were, and, and we were one of those teams that were kind of mostly fighting relegation throughout my career, I felt a responsibility to the city that we're not going to get relegated, especially when the talk of the new stadium was going on and a lot of the new stadium depended on us keeping our Premier League status. And so kind of when we moved to the new stadium, it was almost like a relief that we kind of got there. Mm -hmm. That's been done now. You know, the club are financially stable. We can get bigger crowds in to help us compete better. And so kind of my job was kind of done, really, and I was getting on a bit. I'd start to have quite a lot of injuries and, and the such like, so I only had the, the one season at St Mary's. So kind of when we got relegated three seasons later and then went into administration, it was just like during those periods of time, it was like, it was like somebody had like stuck a knife in me because I can just remember thinking, I've just grafted me nuts off for years and years to put the club in that position. And now, in the space of three years, it's all gone to ratchet, we're in administration, now we're playing in League One. You know, and it was like, jeez. And that, what was that period also, once, once you'd given everything and made certain choices as a man, uh, not just as a footballer, if I'm not wrong, it must have felt to you that the decline was racked with stupidity. Yes. And that it was a limp... Surrendered. It was gross stupidity, and I and I did the I was co-commentating on the game at St Mary's against Manchester United when we last day of the season when we got relegated officially, and having played in so many games on the last day of the season where we needed something to stay up, I couldn't believe what I witnessed that day from those professional footballers because that was that wouldn't have happened in our day. And I know it's it, old players going, well, it wasn't like that in my day. No, I but, don't think that's what we're listening to. But I didn't see any fight in that team to stay up and any pride in their football club to try and keep that team in the division on that day. And think, that, that hurt me. That emphasises how, how unusual. You, you probably didn't view what, your choices as, as noble. I think you must have known intellectually that you, you, you weren't unique. I grew up in a club where Willie Miller never played for another team. Mm. Alex McLeish never no, played for another it, team. It's not Puyol unique. We all at, um, at Barcelona. But when you mention those names and there are others, you go, oh yeah, he was special. Oh yeah, and he was special too. Special. You know, there aren't many of you around. No. You can't have been no. utterly shocked at the difference in people who don't care apart from the check. It, well, you said it. You used the word limp. Yeah, I meant it. And, and it was. It was just kind of... I just saw the last half an hour of that game. 
yeah, they're just kind of. I've never seen somebody give up the ghost, kind of in the way that, that those players did that day, mm. and, and that kind of hurt me, because uh, yeah, there, there's been two times when I've retired from football where I wanted to go and play again. That day against Manchester United was one of them. I think um, I can guess the other one. And then um, cup final and the cup final the year <laughs> after I retired was the other one. You know, so that that kind of hurt because. I'd spent a lot of time trying to get to Wembley for, with Southampton. We did in the Zenith Data Systems Cup, but not quite the same. So missing out on an FA Cup final by a year was, yeah, that, that kind of made me cry that day. Both of these things, I don't mean too personal, by your face, they, they both live with you today. You know, I mean, neither of those emotions have gone. No. <laughs> uh, no, there were certain things that I talk about in my career which were so emotional that when I do talk about them now I still feel things and it, they, they kind of those uh, emotions come back and it's um, it's still not nice to talk about it So Hampton are a Premier League club and full of Yes they, 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 they I just I think you, if we owe you anything we owe you and move on to sunnier climbs before we finish <laughs> they, they bloody hell they're good at scouting and picking managers and let me run through a couple of options about who you want to share your views upon Mauricio Pochettino, gift from God, brought from Espanol. At the time, a troubling departure for an apparently very talented and apparently good coach. Yep. Um, and Mauricio Pochettino does well at Southampton and goes to the club you supported in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, question B, Gareth Bale, extraordinary athlete. Yeah. Very, very good at your club. Taught well at your club, goes to the club that um, you supported as a kid and is now a double European champion. Mm. Matthew Letizia, your specialist subjects are Maurizio Pochettino <laughs> and Gareth Bale. Um, I think Maurizio obviously came in and it was very tough for him because, you know, Nigel Adkins was sacked as Southampton manager. He was a very popular yeah, and I can understand guy why. with the Southampton fans. You know, yeah. he just got us promoted two seasons on the spin. Mm-hmm. So we've taken us back-to-back promotions from, from League One. We were 2-0 down at Stamford Bridge. We'd just come back in the second half, drew two all, and lying about 14th or 15th in the Premier League table in our first season back in, which, you know, was pretty creditable at that stage. And, and financially um, very lucrative too. So, yeah. So it was a, a huge surprise when, when Nigel got sacked. Do my eyes deceive me, but given not just your ties to the club, but your, your analytical brain... Was it not quite simple to see the system on the pitch? I, I, th- I thought you could really see how he was trying to make them play and the degree to which his players, whether they were with him for a long time or not, applied a, a system that was quite definable, I, I, I thought. I, I thought so as well. You know, I, I was as shocked as anybody. But then, kind of, given that uh, the way that our chairman was at that point, <laughs> yeah. it probably shouldn't have shocked me. But having said that, so Mauricio come in, He's under a bit of pressure straight away because the manager yep. previous was so popular. You know, this decision was made. I think he came in his first game. I think it was against Everton. His first game, we drew nil nil at home, mm. and it was kind of a mm, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but you even in that Everton game, you could see that the difference in the style of play that he'd gone to, uh, as opposed to what Nigel was doing, and it took the players a, a few games to get used to it. Once they did, oh boy. Mm-hmm. You did start to see the difference, and, and it did do a, a fantastic job for us. I think we finished eighth in the full season that he was in charge for. As a Southampton fan, seeing us back at you know, not just back in the Premier League, but back in the top half mm-hmm. of the Premier League, was was superb. And he was getting a real good tune out of some some good footballers mm-hmm. who kind of flourished under him as well. 
And Spurs, you can see a development, I think, not just in Spurs, but probably even in Maurizio as a manager now. And although, for my personal taste, it feels as if they might have added another more guaranteed scorer, whether it was a Matt Letizia type or not, Mm. their experience of last season and how they played and their mentality, the successful side of it, the positive mentality, seems more of a plus right now than the way in which they kind of faltered and fell and did a Devon Loch at the end. Yeah. It's a very positive environment, and he seems to have thrived on last season's experience too. I, I think so. They've, they've a pretty good start to this season, which I think perhaps some people probably didn't think Spurs would be as strong this year given, I, given part the, of that I agree, yeah, I, agree. You know, I, I think a lot of people are the same I, I wouldn't have probably said that Spurs would be up there in the top two again top mm. two or three this season so for him to have come back and as you say he's learning all the time as a, as a manager and I think the only, the only reservation that kind of you look at now yes Spurs kind of ran out of steam a little bit that last few games of last season Southampton did the same Okay. The, the full season that he was in charge. Okay. You know, we, we kind of did the, the performances towards the back end of the season just did uh, dip a little, and you just wonder if the intensity of their play, maybe just at the end of a long season, just starts to get to them a little bit. That's the only question mark. But you know, I guess having the squad that he's got, it's only going to get stronger. And the, the bigger squad, the stronger squad you have, the more you can kind of do with that press and, and carry it through the whole season. <laughs> I guess it was just unfortunate for them that that last day of the season against Newcastle was just was probably I'd say his most embarrassing defeat since he's been in England. It, it felt like there was a big hangover from the Chelsea game. It did, but as an outsider looking in and knowing what the rivalry meant between Spurs and Arsenal, and I could have understood that if it was somebody else in third place that was mm-hmm. looking to overtake yeah. him on the last day of the season. Point made. I could understand that. But that again is do how many back on the same theme. How many of the players really understood feel the badge, feel the history. What that what that meant dropping below Arsenal that last day of the season. Gareth Bale is immensely talented, but doesn't have your skill set. So let's not be confused. But can I propose to you that he's um, slightly underappreciated for a guy who hasn't dominated Spanish and isn't going to to go from Southampton to. to to develop as he did at Spurs, which I thought he did hugely. Mm, eventually, and yes. It took him. It took him a while to break into. Yeah, we put Spurs Harry on team. this podcast, and Harry was blunt about on the training ground when he would say, "No, leave him. Leave him. Roll around. Let me get up and stop. You know, leave you here and whatever." But it's the same as you say about the end of season at um, Southampton. It, you know, people need to learn. They do absolutely. They do and change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I am I wrong in thinking that that he's underappreciated in what he's achieved at Real Madrid? Is he underappreciated? We don't I know, do that. As I know. Brits. I know what he's done. I know how good he is. Yeah, tell me then. Um, I think having seen him as a as a sixteen year old come through at Southampton, you kind of realised, especially given the fact we were kind of in the Championship, and you see something like that come through, you kind of know he's not going to be at your football club for very long. Yeah. That's the situation we were in at the time. Same happened with Theo. After Gareth, it happened with Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Yeah. You kind of know when you're in those leagues, you know, even in the Premier League now, you know, it's difficult to keep hold of your players. So we yes. had no chance in the Championship. So having watched him kind of develop, you knew that quite quickly he was going to be snapped up by one of the big boys. Uh, it was Spurs, not just with Gareth, but I think with Theo as well, and perhaps with, with Alex. I've always kind of said that they moved a little bit too early before they were ready to go. 
Now, the only reason I say that is because it took them a while to get established at their new clubs, and I thought that time might have been better used gaining experience in that division, toughening them up a little bit at a young age in that division, playing proper competitive football. Because Theo didn't play a great deal of first-team football when he first went to Arsenal. He was just kind of almost a permanent sub for a while there. I thought they could have done a better learning experience in in the real world, as I call it, playing in that league. So, But once he'd got established at Spurs, I mean, that season when Spurs were in the Champions League, somebody putting in those performances at a club like that, you've got to be a very special footballer. Not putting myself down here, but at Southampton, if you're you're a really good player and you kind of stand out a little bit, Mm -hmm. if you go to a team like a Spurs or an Arsenal or a Man United and you're a player like that and you stand out in a team like that, that marks you out as a little bit different Mm -hmm. and a little bit special. And what he did eventually that those two seasons really before he went off to Real Madrid were just outstanding. Do you, outstanding. Do you, can you empathise with? You're, I think you're very differently skilled because yeah. I don't you think can run he, quick for a start. No, I mean <laughs> in a positive sense. You know, I think I think maybe the better way to say it is that you have skills that, as talented as he is, possibly he doesn't. But the way I can draw a line between the two of you, and I mean it, that you're part of what you're talking to, talking about is the Inter Milan games, extraordinary. Yeah. The degree to which the Spurs team started to look at him and say, "Well, give the ball to Gareth." Now Absolutely. I remember that from an Allen Ball team talking. You give him the ball, give him the ball. Now that's fine, but <clears throat> you're also giving pressure all the time. Yeah. He started to score goals off his other foot. He started to yep. score goals from headers. He started to play as a full centre forward coming in. You watch the trajectory, and then you look him at Real Madrid. And the cup final comes a lot. Cristiano doesn't fancy him at the moment and says, "The club says, for God's sake, say that Cristiano costs more because that's the psychology and Gareth's got to handle that <laughs> without Spanish." And a cup final turns up and he scores in the cup final. Yeah. European Cup final comes up. You know where I'm going. I can draw a line between your appetite for pressure and responsibility and Absolutely. his. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, you can also add to that the way that he coped in the Euros in the summer. That's extraordinary. Wasn't I, it? I just thought. The way he handled himself in the media, yeah. with all the hopes of a nation, kind of almost resting on his on his shoulders, and yet he looked so relaxed through it all. Mm-hmm. Looked like he was enjoying every second of it, and I thought he was brilliant. At it. I thought he just came out of that tournament with so much credit, uh, and what he's gone on to do has been phenomenal. And I kind of know how good he is, and, and I watch him, and, and I know what he's achieved. So I, I don't view him uh, as being not really valued where he is because I can see what, what he's done but there are I guess what I'm talking there are about is number is one I, I think a lot of Brits choose not to go abroad because they're scared of it mm. secondly yeah. many that go just simply can't handle the change of culture change of language uh, change of discipline in life he has yep. and beyond that there's this I mean I don't want to call out my own profession but there's this constant of get tired of that little old Real Madrid in a minute Manchester United Manchester United Manchester United every single month mm. since he's gone away there's been a story about <laughs> he'll choose a big club soon in Manchester United we turned him down in the first in the summer when Ryan Giggs said to him we want you no I'm going to Real Madrid and I don't feel that across the fan base here and across the media mm. there's enough recognition of his, his character yeah his uh, appetite yeah. for pressure, yeah. the act of choices he, he's made to go to Real Madrid ahead of Manchester United, no, no disrespect mm. to them, which again, I'm drawing something of a line. I think it tells you a lot about him personally that he would do that because it would have been quite easy for him to have gone, oh, yeah, 
anti-Semitic gigs in this country. Countrymen. My, my, I think he was a big fan of gigs growing up, as you would be as a as a well, Welsh kid. You yeah. know, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Slightly. So to, that would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to do. But I think you're you're absolutely right. He showed such great character and such great mental strength to, to go. No, I'm going to go right to the top, and I'm going out of my comfort zone. You know, I've grown up. And I'm going, and that's the, that's the team for me. And fair play to me, not brilliant. And wherever you, whenever you see him scoring goals in the Champions League or winning trophy, you just see that little Southampton crest <laughs> just glowing through the room. Yes. There's a little bit of that. He was one of us once. <laughs> <laughs> that's Steve Archibald, Barcelona. That's why I chose to live there. Yeah. It's the way that... We want to finish now. I don't want to be a mushy finish, but I do want to ask you something about... It felt um, very much when we were looking at your life and your career and what you've said about it that, and particularly when you, you talk in the book about wages and you're really open which is very unusual in football <laughs> maybe partially that's inspired you to go into the advice and representation agency that you got with Franny Benali and yep. I'll bet you a million dollars or more that anybody who chooses to take your counsel and be guided by you as a group I'm quite certain that their choices will, will be good but you're really unusual in being frank about money. And the Southampton question is the, probably the most asked you ever get. But am I, is it feasible to say that you actively chose happiness in your life? That in quite a lot of situations, you took the time to think about what was the thing that motivated you rather than mm. being guided by an instinct or somebody pushing you. Or, and that you, you use the phrase laid back all the time. I, I think I'm talking to a guy who went, I value being happy over... Yeah, 100%. And that was kind of one of the, the things growing up in Guernsey. I grew up on a council estate in Guernsey. I don't remember going on family holidays abroad, any of that kind of stuff as a kid. But I had one of the, the happiest childhoods you can imagine. Loved every second of it and didn't need money to be happy. And that kind of was one of the reasons. I loved football. I was good at it. The money wasn't anything to do with, with why I became a footballer. Not a single bit of it. If a footballer was paid less than a plumber... I'd have still been a footballer, mm-hmm. no matter what. And that was kind of what, what I felt like I was here to do. Mm-hmm. And any decisions that I made were kind of never about money. I earned a good wage, don't get me wrong. I, I had a very comfortable life. Oh, well, in the days there were plumbers earning more than Southampton players. Oh, yeah, there probably was at the time. That was, not the, that was not my main motivation. Money wasn't my main motivation. Trophies weren't my main motivation. That's why people kind of didn't get and they can't understand why I didn't move you know, but you would have earned so much more money you would have won trophies that wasn't why I wanted to be a footballer I wanted to be a footballer because I loved playing football and I loved putting smiles on people's faces showing them what I could do and it didn't matter what shirt I had on when I was doing it I just wanted to be happy in my life and happy in my football and I could do that so that is the podcast equivalent a swivel and a left foot finish <laughs> into the top right hand corner of Alex Manninger's net. <laughs> um, God has brought you to us on this table, Matthew Letissier. <laughs> Flipping heck. That was majestic. Thank you. Cheers, Graham. Thanks, mate. There you go. The Big Interview is produced by Backpage and by me, Graham Hunter. Thanks as always to Beer Jacket for the music. Please don't only keep up to date with everything that we're doing at grahamhunter.tv, but sign up. It's free. There's a little box for your email address, and it means that you won't miss an episode. Never mind all the podcast apps that you've got. 
I'm undercast, overcast, wombling free, whatever it might be. Sign up with us and we send you the podcast every time it comes out. And we tell you about little pieces of news and we allow you to get your questions to us for the guests as we announce them. There's a newsletter. It'll keep you informed with everything that the Big Interview is doing. We're on Facebook. Look for The Big Interview. We're at GH Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Please keep in touch. Let us know what you think. We do this for you, not just for ourselves, although, damn it, we do enjoy it. Thanks for being there. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.